last week you live in a money pit Money pit If your basement needs a pump Or your place looks like a dump You live in a money pit Money pit Pick up the telephone Fix up your home sweet home I call it 888 Money Pit Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And we are here to help you take on the projects you want to get done around your house. You got a project in mind? Is it a remodeling project, a renovation project, a big maybe addition or something crazy cool that you're doing? Or maybe it's just a decor dilemma. Whatever's on your to-do list, you can move it right over to ours at 1-888-MONEYPIT. Call us with your questions or post them online at moneypit.com. Dot com. Coming up on today's show, if your home is feeling a little cramped, taking out a wall to open the space up could be a very neat solution if you know how. So we're going to have some tips on how you can safely remove even load-bearing walls without your house falling down around you. All right, that's good. And, you know, the warm glow of a fireplace certainly is a welcome addition on these chilly winter nights. But a wood-burning fireplace isn't the only way that you can get the heat and the ambiance that a fire can bring. We're going to share how you can have all the benefits of a fire without a chimney when you install a direct vent gas fireplace. And downsizing is a big trend these days. But if living small is not for you, we're going to have tips on ways to make life a bit simpler and more affordable without shrinking your space. But first, what's your home rental plan for 2023? What are you guys thinking about? What do you want to work on? What kind of changes do you want to make? Well, whatever it is around your money pit, we can help you. You've got Tom and I in your corner, and we're standing by to lend a hand. So reach out to us right now at one eight 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 Money Pit. That's eight 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 six 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 three nine seven four. Or post your questions on MoneyPit.com by clicking the blue microphone button. Let's get to it, Leslie. Who's first? We've got Eileen on the line, who's talking about a toilet that's got a lot of condensation issues. What's happening? I have polar toilets that wet. There's water that condenses on the outside surface of the toilet, and then it drips on the floor. So I'm not sure whether it's the toilet or whether it's cold water that's part of the issue? Well, Eileen, that actually is a, is a problem that we hear about once in a blue moon, and it usually happens because the water is really, really cold. You must have like super cold groundwater coming up into that plumbing system, and then you also have a warm, moist, humid house. And the two of those combined together is going to cause a lot of condensation. Now, a couple of things you can do. Some toilets, they do have insulating kits for the inside of the toilet walls, Although there is some concern that the insulation breaks down after a while and kind of get into the valves. Toilets are typically filled with cold water, right? But when you have this kind of problem, sometimes a plumber can put in a hot water line that doesn't give you all the hot water for filling the toilet, but it spills into the cold water and mixes it a little bit so that the water temperature is a lot warmer than it was. It's not quite as cold as it was. And then you don't have the condensation problem. So there are two ways to address that. And finally, Do the things that you can do around the outside of your house to reduce moisture from getting in. Grading, drainage, gutters, all the things that we talk about to fix crawl spaces that leak or basements that leak. All of that reduces the amount of moisture, natural moisture that gets into the house. And if the house is drier, there's going to be less condensation that can happen. All right, we're heading out to Illinois where we've got Greg on the line who's dealing with some vinyl siding issues. What's going on? Well, I'm wanting to replace the vinyl siding on the house, and I'm seeing more of a trend where Houses have their siding hung vertical instead of horizontal. 
Are there any pros or cons to installing the siding vertically, and what's the best material to use? Well, yeah, I am seeing that as well, and whatever siding it is has to be rated for a vertical installation and the backer for the siding as well. So typically, you're going to have some sort of a weatherproof backer on a lot of those products. But uh, I've seen it. I've not seen it with vinyl, but I have seen it with composite. And I think as long as it's installed consistent with the manufacturer's instructions and they rate it as an installation method, that I wouldn't have any fears about doing it. Uh, you know, we've seen shiplap siding, for example, done vertically or horizontally for years, and it seems to hold up just fine. It's got a pretty healthy dose of uh, weatherproof building paper behind it, but it seems to it seems to work fine. I, th- I also see a lot of folks use that as an accent, like, for example, just on the front wall of a house, but not on the remaining walls. So I think it's a viable option. I think we're seeing more and more of it, and certainly it's been around in, in commercial construction more than residential, but I wouldn't have any hesitancy about using that if that was a, a look that I was trying to go for. Yeah, I was more concerned about when currently I have vinyl siding that runs, of course, horizontally, and when rain hits the house, of course, it just rolls right down. I was concerned if the siding is vertical or, yeah, vertical, that uh, rain would have a chance to get in between the boards. Yeah, of course. Those siding pieces are designed for that, so they're going to have a way of channeling that water away or a backer board to the point where it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, Sounds good to me. Did you know that Americans take 20,000 breaths a day and spend an average of 90% of their time indoors? That's right. And according to the EPA, the level of indoor air pollutants can be two to five times higher than outdoor air and occasionally more than 100 times higher. Plus, every spring we get sucked with allergens, too. Well, Air Doctor is an air purifier that filters out dangerous contaminants like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold. Their Ultra HEPA filter has been independently tested to remove 99.99% of tested allergens, including bacteria and viruses. That's impressive. Now, Air Doctor also comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus the shipping. And they're offering a special discount to Money Pit listeners. Just head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you'll also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock this special offer in right now by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-Pro.com and use promo code MONEYPIT. That's airdoctorpro.com, promo code MONEYPIT. We've got Barb in Delaware on the line who's got a question about insulation. Tell us about it. I have a a home that was built in 1966. There was a time when you had the house insulated. It seems to be very good. My question is, do I need to have more insulation piped in? Well, Barb, with a 1966 house, you definitely are going to be due for more insulation because, frankly, the standards have changed over the years, and after all those years, I'm sure the existing insulation has settled and sagged and lost some of its buoyancy, which means it doesn't insulate very well. So the simple fix here is to add additional insulation to your attic. You would use unfaced fiberglass bats, probably 8 or 10 or 12 inches thick. You could lay them right on top of the existing floor or the existing insulation perpendicular to that, and that will restore a lot of insulation power to your house. That means you're going to be more comfortable and your heating bills are going to go down. 
Now we've got Tim on the line who's dealing with a big crack in a driveway causing some unevenness. Tell us what's going on. Well, I have a uh, concrete driveway. It's three inches thick. I found that out after I saw the crack in the driveway. And they poured this driveway in one as far as width, and they put it, it's probably 16 foot wide, and they poured it in 16 by 12 foot sections with, it uh, looks like, fracture pieces in it instead of the actual expansion joints. And where it goes over my drop, my uh, the ditch, over my cupboard, it has a spot about a one foot in a triangle, one foot by one foot by one foot, where it has dropped. And I'm trying to find some way to bring that piece back up level with the rest. That way I can see. I already had it sealed, but I put like a silicone in there along the joints to keep any further erosion from happening. How big is the piece that's dropped? You said is it cracked one foot by one foot by one foot? Yeah. It's a one-foot triangle piece. So can you dig that piece out? No, I can't because it did not break on a smooth line. It, it fractured and dropped down. Yeah, because, you know, I tell you what, I, I've I've broken sidewalks in half before because I had to run pipes underneath them and then put them back in place kind of right where they were and just sort of filled them up and made it level. So it would be sweet if you could extract that piece of concrete, but I guess you can't. And so now you're going to have to pour a new piece. How thick is the – how far down is it dropped? Yeah, the front – on the back edge of it is still level. On the front, it's probably dropped about three inches. Okay. Well, not so bad. Um, what you're going to do is you're going to mix up a, a, an epoxy-based concrete repair product that has good adhesion. Okay. And then you're going to put a second layer on that. And uh, quickcrete – Q-U-I-K-R-E-T-E. Okay. Yeah, you want to use the, the type of concrete mix that's made, made to be a patch. And the difference is that it sticks to the old stuff. If you use regular concrete mix, it won't stick. But if you use the, the patch mix, then it will stick. Uh, and they also have uh, good step-by-step videos on their website to kind of show you how to do this. Okay. Would I be better off by just knocking that one piece that piece out and refilling it since it's not that big of a piece? Yeah, it, you might be uh, because I want to make sure it's stable underneath. But they there's a vinyl concrete patcher product that can be used uh, on top of this. And it's designed to adhere to what was there before and not crack again. Okay? I appreciate it. All right. Well, good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. Well, if you love open floor plans, but you haven't really started to pursue one for your home because, you know, those walls are just getting in the way, don't worry about it. You can remove those walls, even if they're load-bearing, but you have to know what you're doing, right? That is true, but while we usually say that a project is not as hard as it seems, in this case, it is. This is definitely not something that a novice DIYer should attempt. Yeah, so I guess really the first question here is, what exactly is a load-bearing wall, and how do you know if that wall that you want to remove is truly a load-bearing wall? Well, a load-bearing wall is simply a wall that holds the structure above it. Now, in a simple home design like a ranch or a colonial, these are usually the walls that are parallel with the front and rear walls of the home and located kind of right down the middle. So you have the exterior walls that are load-bearing, and then those walls that are parallel down the middle, those are also load-bearing. Now, the project basically involves both bracing what you have so you make sure the structure is not damaged and then rebuilding the wall in the new configuration, which could include, for example, a new door or archway or another open design. And basically, you're supporting what's there. Then once it's supported, you are taking out the area of the wall that you want to change. You're inserting a new 
wall structure, which is going to have the ability to still bear the load, but it might be, for example, a header that goes across the top or a metal beam that goes across the top, and it could even be flush with the ceiling, so it wouldn't even be like an archway. It could actually have a continuously flat ceiling all the way across, but you've got to support it, the area around it. You basically build temporary walls on either side of the area you're working on while you do all this sort of wall surgery. And like I said, not really a DIY project. Certainly need a pretty healthy uh, DIY education before you get in there. It's not for the faint of heart, and it would be foolish to do it unless you fully understand it. But you could do other parts of this. I mean, you could have a contractor come in and do the rebuild, and you could do the drywall and, and kind of take it from there. Now, I, you know, if you can't take the walls out or if it seems like this is too big of a project that you're willing to tackle or too expensive, there are some ways that you can give your space a more open feel. I mean, obviously not the same as having that big open floor plan, but you can sort of achieve that same sort of openness by making sure that you're using a lot of light colors. Um, that definitely makes a space feel bigger. Mirrors can help bounce light around to give you more of a feeling of open space. Don't clutter the rooms with so much furniture. If you kind of give yourself some open areas in the floor plan, that can help make a space feel more open. Lighter ceilings, more lighting, lots of interesting ways that you can help a space to feel bigger without actually taking down those walls. Good advice and a heck of a lot safer. Now we're going to talk garages with Kathy from Georgia. It's a G thing. What's going on, Kathy? How can we help you? We have a garage addition, a double garage. Okay. that we stopped using a few years ago and okay. just use it for, like, what people would use a basement or something in the South. We don't have basements, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, and we only have a crawl attic. So what we were looking at simply is we the garage doors were taken out some years ago, and we have a little entry door there, an exit door. And on the outside, it was replaced with some wood that was probably medium grade, um, but we wanted to update it to something a little more attractive uh, to add to our house. We have uh, savanna gray brick on our house, okay, and we have um, we have some cedar on um, the bedroom side of our house, which is a like an L-shaped home. So the cedar wood is on the far side of the house. So we were just trying to decide whether we should keep the house with consistency with something on the order of the cedar wood or something that's viable that will last, you know, many, many years. If I was driving by your house or I was, you know, parked in front of it and looking at the old garage, would I be able to see the outline of the old garage doors? No, you cannot. It's replaced by, like I said, a medium-grade type of wood. Okay, so you you basically completely obliterated the appearance of those garage doors because a lot of times what I see when people do this project is they fill in the garage opening, but it doesn't look the same as the as the rest of the wall. You can tell, like a patch. That's what I've seen in areas in where I live. We do have some of the L-shaped older homes. My home was built in the early 50s. So um, the L-shaped concept was... I guess you would say maybe popular then, and um, so the bedroom, the bedroom end of the house exceeds out a little bit, so that's where you get that L-shape idea, and then as you uh, move towards the, where the garage would be, it, it's just straight from there down. So we were trying to think of something um, attractive that would look good with the brick. Your question is really one of what's the best siding material that's going to match what you have now, yet be very durable. 
and you have brick, which is as durable as it gets. You have cedar, which is more durable than pine or, or fir, but does require well, it's a lot of upkeep. So my suggestion would be to use hardy plank. And hardy plank is a cementitious siding product that looks like wood siding. So I, for example, have a very old house. And on my garage, which is not a very old garage, I have a product called hardy shingle. Yep, when I painted the garage uh, shingles and the house shingles the same color, it's pretty hard to tell them apart from the street. It looks like it's the old wood all the way around, even though one is made of an incredibly durable, uh, non-organic product that doesn't decay and doesn't rot and holds up to hail damage and that sort of thing. Uh, color-wise, though, Leslie, if she's got a, you said you had a gray brick, what uh, areas of color do you think she might want to explore? I mean, I think I would go as close to in color of that gray brick as possible. Like, either go a shade darker, as long as it's going to be everything but the facade, and then that'll sort of, you know, create its own, it'll set up the front to be more defined, but then give you a uniform look around the rest. So I'd go either a very similar shade or a shade darker. Right. Okay, I appreciate the help and advice. Everyone should know that drinking water is important to staying hydrated and healthy. Having safe, clean water is the last thing you want to worry about, but unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants right in its tap water. That's why we are thrilled to be working with AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. It removes 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and is specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAs in your water supply. And they have water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. They even have a Wi-Fi-connected purifier and mineral boost options. And its proprietary purification technology is independently tested by IATMO to NSF and ANSI standards to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAs known as forever chemicals, nitrate, and many more. I can truly taste the difference when I compare it with my old water filter. AquaTrue saves you money also. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That's less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you'll save the environment from tons of plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and even makes a great gift. And today, Money Pit listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to aquatrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code MONEYPIT at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier when you go to aquatrue.com and use promo code M-O-N-E-Y-P-I-T, MONEYPIT. Heading over to Illinois where we've got Keith on the line who wants to chat about the Money Pit. What's going on at yours? I'm calling about what issues I must understand when I turn the water back on to a house in which the water has been turned off for a little over a year. Okay. And I'm assuming there might be some leakage due to washers not being moistened or whatever, but I don't know, so I'm asking for your instructions. So that's a good question. And as a home inspector for over 20 years, I've seen a lot of things happen when it comes to you know, re-engaging the water supply in a house. So here's what I would suggest. 
first of all, it would be very helpful if you had a couple of people to help you with this. But what you want to do is turn the water. Make, first of all, make sure all of the faucets are turned off in the house. And then turn the water on. And the first thing you should hear is really the water sort of recharge the pipes and, and fill up the pipes. And it shouldn't continue to run and run and run if all the faucets are off. It's going to run a little bit because the toilets are going to fill. But it should pretty much fill pretty quickly. Once that water is on... Then you go fixture by fixture, and you run those faucets, and you flush the toilets, and you look under cabinets to see if there's leakage from the drains and that sort of thing. And if you work it carefully and systematically across the whole house, you should figure this out pretty quickly, whether or not you've got any serious leaks going on. If the water was drained when it was turned off, then you should not have any issues with pipes that froze and broke, but that's always an issue. But other than that, you should be able to turn it back on reliably and have it work. Yeah, you may have some faucets to fix or washers to fix or toilet flush, flush or fill valves to change, but you just want to do it systematically. Turn every fixture off in the house, then open up the main and start looking, start listening, and start watching and see if you have any leaks. Anything serious, you turn it back off and, and then take it from there. Call a plumber. All right, Keith, good luck with that project. Thanks for calling us at one eight 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 Money Pit. Now we're taking a call from Luann, who's dealing with a flooring issue. What's going on? Well, I had a hallway carpet uh, when I moved here, but uh, my cat got sick. Uh-oh. And he started <laughs> peeing, yeah, oh, all boy. over the carpet. Okay. So I removed the carpet. Mm-hmm. I washed the plywood floor, and then I painted it with kills. Okay. Which is supposed to kill the smell. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now my dog goes pee in one spot every night and I'm going to have someone come in next week. They're putting down the, uh, you know, that plastic or whatever they put underneath and I'm getting hardwood. Okay. So you're, you're kind of a glutton for punishment here. (laughs) You keep improving the floors and the pets keep ruining them on you. Here's what I would do. I would take up the old floor and I would prime the subfloor again just because this is the time to do that. Okay. I did it right the first time. I just think you should do it again because this way if there's anything left over from the pets, this will help to seal it in. And it won't be nearly as bad as if you didn't do it. So before that new floor goes down, I think it's a smart idea to prime the old floor again. I would use, Kills was a fine product. I would, if you had a choice, I would use the oil-based or the solvent-based version of that because it comes latex and it comes solvent-based. The solvent-based is a little tougher and gives you a better seal than the water-based. Well, to be honest, it was the oil base. I oh, didn't good. know it. <laughs> well, you made the <laughs> right decision. It was winter, then. and I'm yeah. putting it on. Yeah, that's a good idea. If you have a problem with a pet like that, is to prime that surface, because it does get saturated, and it's the best way to seal it in permanently. So good luck with that project, Luann, and uh, maybe we need to do a little work training the pets, right? <laughs> oh, well, thank you two so very much. You're welcome. Well, the warm glow of a fire is a welcome addition on a cold winter's night, but a wood-burning fireplace isn't the only way that you can get the heat and the ambiance that a fire can bring. You can have all of those benefits that a fireplace does without a chimney when you install a direct vent gas fireplace. 
For example, a traditional brick wood-burning fireplace uses indoor air for combustion. It takes that air from inside the house. And remember, that air has already been heated, so you kind of paid to get that heated air. But then it sends it up the chimney. On the other hand, a direct vent gas fireplace is going to draw air from the outdoors to feed the flame. And that's a lot more efficient because you're not losing that valuable heated air and not sending it literally up the chimney. Another advantage is that a direct vent gas fireplace is actually sealed off from the interior rooms by a glass door, and that lets them convert most of that fuel to usable heat. So there's very little waste here. Yeah, but I think one of the other huge advantages is the design flexibility because direct vent fireplaces can be installed through the wall. They can be placed anywhere in a home. And if you don't have wall space, these fireplaces can also be vented upward through your roof. And they tend to be shallower than those traditional gas fireplaces. And they're available in so many widths and heights and styles that you're for sure going to find something that's going to work in that space and just enhance the decor and give you that mood you're looking for. Yeah, and one of the reasons that they fit in so many places is because they're typically a zero-clearance fireplace, which means you, need, you can basically put them in right against wood framing without any risk whatsoever of, of overheating. It's just the way that these are designed. In terms of installation, you need a pretty strong skill set to handle this one yourself and get it done safely because the project's going to involve a lot of different trades. I mean, think about it. you got carpentry. you got some plumbing with the guest lines. you got electrical work. So it's probably a job you're going to want to get the help of a qualified pro to complete. But all in all, this is going to cost a fraction of the amount of installing a masonry fireplace or, frankly, even a wood stove. And it's just a really nice way to conveniently have a fire to enjoy on these chilly winter days. Heading to Pennsylvania, where Dave's got a question about keeping his brick house nice and warm. What's going on? Well, I'm uh, remodeling it. and It's a, a balloon frame construction, which means that... You know, there's no uh, board to stop the fire if it goes up the fire blocks. And I, I have lath and plaster. I feel like we have the same house, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're nice houses. Yeah, that's right. And well built, too. So you're trying to figure out how you can fill that cavity uh, without sort of destroying the wall or the brick on either side, correct? Or creating a mold problem. Yeah, I hear you. Okay. So in this case, um, first of all, let's talk about insulation priorities. I know that we all want to run to those exterior walls to insulate them first, but the most important place in any home to insulate is that, that uppermost ceiling right underneath the attic. And in most places in this country, most homes in this country, there's not enough. So if you're in Pennsylvania, you really need to have 15 to 20 inches of fiberglass or the equivalent in that space. That is the single most effective way to increase comfort and reduce heating and cooling bills. Once that's done, then we can talk about the walls. The walls are much harder to insulate, as you've described, because you don't want to destroy the plaster on one side and you have brick on the other. So the only way to do this is with blown-in insulation. And the blown-in insulation you're going to want to use is cellulose. Now, it's really a job that has to be done professionally because, first of all, they have to identify where those cavities are, which you can do with an infrared camera. And they need to make sure that every cavity is completely filled. And when the cellulose is blown in, it has to go in under a certain amount of pressure because there's a little bit of settlement that happens. And so that's why it's a little bit of a, it, it takes a fair amount of, of sort of insulation craftsmanship to get this right. But that's the step that you would need to follow to make sure you get the insulation in those spaces. Uh, once it's done, you'll be able to see before and afters with the infrared camera to make sure that you've gotten all of those cavities filled. Now, if you can't get to that, 
because of expense or time or hassle, you will have small circular holes about two inches in diameter to be, to be patching at every open space, every open bay, I should say, on the inside. The other part of this that you might want to do is to make sure that the box beam from the basement or crawl space, that outermost lower section of the wood floor beam on the exterior wall is also heavily insulated because that will stop a lot of air that will try to kind of come up under the brick, so to speak, and work its way in there. But that's really what you have to do when you have a brick house. You really want to concentrate on that attic insulation first. The box beam is an easy thing to check off the mark, as is the attic insulation, and then you deal with the walls, and that's how you would deal with them. That's really the best way to do it. Okay. Hey, do they have a a product like vermiculite that you can still put in the walls? The blown-in cellulose is really the upgraded version of that. You don't want to use vermiculite because vermiculite, you know the reason it's not used too much anymore? It contains asbestos. (laughs) So not such a good idea to use that. All right. Thank you very much. Dave, good luck with that project. Thanks so much for calling us. Appreciate it. Well, savings and simplicity have fueled the recent interest in downsizing with more and more homeowners moving into smaller homes. But if your goal is to make life less expensive and more relaxing, there actually are a lot of ways to do that without going super small. You don't have to have a cabin on wheels. Yeah, that's right. You know, your first step really should be to lighten the load. Now, you want to assess your current belongings from your furniture to all the stuff you've got tucked in the very back of your closets, then edit it all down to what you really need and what you want to have around you, which is going to uncover both living and storage space that you probably didn't even realize you had. Yep, and then you want to reorganize what's left. You can revamp closets and other storage areas for more efficiency with do-it-yourself shelving or modular storage solutions. There's a lot of options out there that you'll find. And then do a little staging. Arrange your favorite furnishings so it's really welcoming. You get that sort of clutter-free feel. And then you can put some smart pieces like nesting tables and convertible seating to work in those busy living areas where everybody tends to hang out. Yeah. Now, as you reorganize, you want to start thinking about universal design. I mean, that's a way that you can accommodate a range of ages and abilities in your home with barrier-free floor plans, smart fixtures, and all-around easy access. Now, a few small changes will not only help you enjoy your home for a longer period of time, but it's also going to make for smoother traffic flow. I mean, you know, think about lever door handles, the kind that you, if you've got your hands full, you can use your elbows to open the doors. I mean, that's always helpful because how many times are you holding gross and then struggling to turn a knob. So lever handles are fantastic. Different heights of work surfaces in your kitchen. Maybe the island's a little higher or you have a counter space that's a little lower. This way you can accommodate a variety of heights of guests and abilities and different types of situations, which you may come across later on in life at home. There's so many things that you can do. Paddle light switches instead of the regular light switch. All kinds of stuff that's just going to make it easier all around. I tell you what, those lever door handles, I've always had those because there's no easier way to open up a door when you got a handful of groceries than your elbow, I mean, right? that's true. Laundry, <laughs> groceries, anything. Children. <laughs> now we're heading to New Hampshire. Sarah's on the line. How can we help you? I bought a seasonal home in Maine, so I can only be there six months out of the year because okay. you need a ferry to get over there. Oh, boy. And I, I want to make sure I'm not getting my stir in the year when I'm not there, the six months that I'm not <laughs> okay. there. All right. So what's the best thing to do? 
Well, a couple of things. First of all, don't store food where the mice can can uh, get to it. Uh, and that means, of course, not keeping things in ground level, making sure food is in sturdy containers if it is. If you have any small holes around the foundation perimeter, uh, cracks in the foundation or space between the foundation and the siding, those are good to seal up. And you can do that just by sticking steel wool in the holes. Avoid creating nesting areas. So if you have like piles of firewood against the house or any kind of high brush, stuff like that is another reason for mice to kind of make themselves uh, at home. And finally, I would put down uh, some rodenticide, you know, some decon or product like that, uh, especially in the lower levels of the house. I don't know if you have a basement or a crawl space, but uh, that's generally where the mice start. Uh, and then they will eat that and take it back to the nest, and that will take care of at least some of them. So I think it's just a, a process of uh, good maintenance and not giving them an opportunity to, uh, to have food there that they want to stay around longer for. Well, unfortunately, the uh, the owner before me, all his wood is piled up underneath the porch, so I'm hoping that's not a, an attraction for them. And the other thing is he did insulate underneath the home, so I'm hoping that's a deterrent. I don't think they like the insulation. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually, they love insulation. I've seen mice that will pull, oh, our, pull no. apart pieces of insulation to make a warm nest. Yeah, they're very energy-efficient creatures, you know. They like, they like their insulation. But, it, you know, listen, I think it's good that they insulated the floor because it makes it much more comfortable for you. So those are the kinds of things. But, I, listen, I wouldn't worry about it unless you have a problem. And if it really gets bad, you can call a professional, and they can deploy some additional tactics, okay? All righty. Well, thanks an awful lot. I appreciate your time. All right. Enjoy that vacation home. Thanks for calling us. I shall. Thank you. Bye-bye. Chris has reached out to Team Money Pit, and he says, I have a natural stone foundation with crawl space vents. My question is, do I leave those vents open or closed? That's a very good question. We haven't had that question in quite a while. So let's review what's going on here. So the crawl space vents are there to vent away moisture that's going to come up through the soil and prevent it from collecting as much on the subfloor and also collecting in the insulation, presuming you have it, because if it collects on the subfloor and on the floor joists, you can get some decay. If it gets in the insulation, it's not going to work very well. So it's super important to have those open, but you don't need them open year-round. You really need them open about nine months of the year. During the winter, in those super cold months, it's really not necessary because the air is pretty dry then. But the other things you should be doing is across that crawl space floor, make sure you have some plastic laid down across that. You want to get the big, wide sheets of visqueen plastic, lay it in there, overlap it, not edge to edge, but like overlap it by about three feet and make sure it goes all the way from one side of the foundation to the other. That will help reduce the amount of moisture that evaporates off of the soil. Then keep those crawl space vents open through the spring, the summer, and the fall and close them up in the winter. All right, I hope that helps you out there, Chris. Now, Sean wrote in saying, I've decided I'd actually like to start parking my car inside of the garage. What a concept. <laughs> I mean, I don't know anybody who does. I certainly don't. <laughs> he wants to know if we have any tips for organizing and storing all the stuff that's parked in there now, which is not the car. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you're going to have a big project. But, I mean, garage storage is something that really not only has to be set up, once, but it has to be maintained every day by all members of the family. Yeah, like constantly maintained. Yes, constantly. Step one has got to be the big clean out, right? Yeah. So, Sean, I mean, my garage, technically, my house was built in the 20s. The garage, I think, was added on sometime in the 50s. It will not accommodate a car of my size for this day. So I truly use mine for storage. But what you do is you literally have to take every single thing out 
just take it out. Because once it's out, you're forced to deal with it. And so just remove everything and then look at your heap of a mess and sort of start sorting there. Like, what are things that you use all the time? Think like rakes, shovels, tools, bicycles, that kind of stuff. And put that in one area. Like, these are the things I need. Other stuff like um, seasonal things, put that in one area. And the other stuff, things kids have outgrown, stuff you never use, things that you were like, holy moly, that's still in there? And make another pile. (laughs) And then you kind of know what you're keeping, what you kind of have to rotate through seasonally, and what you can just pitch. I mean, when I cleaned my garage, I literally had the driveway full of stuff, and I called... I don't know if it was like 1-800-GOT-JUNK or college hunks hauling junk, one of them. And I was like, here's <laughs> all the things. And yeah. they totally came and just carted it off. And it made life super duper duper easy. So it's like, that's really what you've got to do. Yeah, when you start putting it back together, one area to really take advantage of is sort of the airspace, right? The overhead space. That's really critical because there's a lot of space up there, and you can use it if you have the right kinds of shelves and hooks and racks. You can get stuff off the floor. And then, as we said at the beginning, you got to maintain it. Everybody has to buy into this, or you're going to be right back where you started with that car outside in the driveway. Yeah, good luck. I feel like two seconds after I've finished, the kids have already trashed it, so (laughs) maybe you'll have better luck. You are listening to the Money Pit Home Improvement Show, and we are so glad that you are. We hope that 2023 has started off as a great year for you. And if you've got rental plans as the year plays out, remember, we are here to help 24-7 at 1-888-MONEY-PIT. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. Remember, you can do it yourself. But you don't have to do it alone. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.